This is the goal. To make available for life every place where life is possible. To make inhabitable all worlds as yet uninhabitable. And all life purposeful. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. That quote, read beautifully there by Jamie, was by Herman Oberth, who, of course, is one of the founding fathers of rocketry and astronautics, as as you all know, passed away in December 1989. Anyway, this week, Jamie has been unexpectedly called off on business so he's not joining me this week it's very annoying he's very annoyed he's tried to get a few little snippets over so we should hopefully have a space fact from jamie at the end and of course we've just had the quote read out by jamie and maybe get a bit of space news i just don't know until he's able to sneak out of his meetings he's got all day and see what he's done but we've got a substitute called george russell how how are you george i'm good yeah what have you been up to today? Um, school. School? Anything else? Kerbal. Bit of Kerbal. Like a bit of Kerbal. Yeah. Before we swing into action, George, mm-hmm. I, I've got to do an overdue obituary. Because I missed it. I missed it. With all the Stephen Hawking thing going on, I missed another passing away of one of my favourite ever people, Donald Lyndon Bell. Back in December 2015... One of my fellow uh, roadies, uh, a brilliant sound engineer called Dan Bartley, he invited me over because his family were having Donald Lyndon Bell for lunch, for supper, after <laughs> watching a film preview, actually the kind of premiere of Star Men, which is a fantastic film. So if you go ever get to see this film, it's a brilliant film about a group of astronomers who... Um, who go back and redo a hike that they did through a, a valley. It's it's fantastic. It's a sort of desert road trip. Uh, but it's it's about these brilliant astronomers. Now, Lyndon Bell, Do- Donald Lyndon Bell, we've actually mentioned his work quite a lot recently. Mm. Uh, Jamie mentioned it last week about um, supermass- supermassive black holes being at the centre of galaxies. And so he was the first person to determine that galaxies contain supermassive black holes at their centres and that those black holes uh, were the things that were powering quasars. So, I mean, that Hmm. is like, you know, we we are talking major league astronomer. He was such a lovely, polite gentleman and spent a lot of time listening to me and Dan blarting on about our jobs and you know we were we were there with one of the with one of the legends of of uh, of astronomy <laughs> so uh he was also there with his wife who happens to be ruth Lyndon bell who's a, a a legendary chemist the emeritus professor of queen's university belfast and university of cambridge so donald passed away in february at the age of 82 mm-hmm. and i'm so chuffed that i met him do you want to do you want to hear one of my favorite theories that he developed? Go on then. It's called violent relaxation. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> Oxymoron there. Uh, it's something to do with the theory of relaxation of a system of particles in changing potential fields affecting the orbits of stars within star clusters and galaxies. 
So what's your what's your favourite one of Lyndon Bell's theories, George? Uh, my favourite is the gravothermal catastrophe. Wow. So tell me a little bit about the gravothermal catastrophe. A phenomenon in star clusters that is the result of negative heat capacity of gravitational systems. Go on, tell me more. Okay, so the catastrophe occurs when the core of a cluster shrinks and heats up, causing it to transfer energy to stars in the cluster's halo, leading the cluster's core to collapse. Remember Donald Lyndon Bell when talking about violent relaxation and gravothermal catastrophe. So, yes, really sad. But what a fantastic person. Lovely, lovely, lovely man. Great hero of astronomy. Sadly missed. Right, let's get on to the space news, George. Do so, it. Tell me a couple of rockets that have been uh, taking off this week. Uh, there's been the X-37B, right? No, oh, no, no. no, rockets that have been boosters. That oh, rockets yeah, yeah, have been taken yeah, yeah, yeah. off. God, you're worse than Jamie. There's a Falcon <laughs> 9 that took off. Um, that launched TESS, which is Na- NASA's satellite. And that's SpaceX, if you didn't know. And a rocket has also launched, and... That launched the Sentinel-3B, and that's an ESA satellite. That's right. That's right. It is. And, of course, it was the Breeze KM, mm-hmm. Jamie's favourite space tug, that took it off into the correct position. So, well done, Sentinels. So, tell us a little bit about this Sentinel-3 satellite. Okay, so the Sentinel-3 satellite, um, Copernicus Sentinel-3B, was launched uh, on the 25th of April, so... Yesterday from now, um, joining its identical twin Sentinel three A in orbit, so mm-hmm. they they combine their powers to um, increase the coverage and data delivery uh, for the European Union's Copernicus Environment Program. That's right, yeah, the Copernicus Program, yeah, so that, that sort of studies Earth. I should have mentioned this right at the beginning of the program. We've got a, a monthly chat with David Baker about everything space that's coming up in this month's space flight. So a little preview for you all. Very interesting. Always great to have David on the show. And we shall be talking a little bit about, well, he mentions uh, NASA's Earth science stuff because it's, of course, been reinstated in the budget. So TESS. So can you tell us a little bit about TESS? What does TESS actually stand for, George? The Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, Mm -hmm. is an astronaut astronomical of observatory in nasa's explorer program mm-hmm. uh, so it was launched in april 18 by falcon 9 uh tess will survey the sky to find out e- find exoplanets transiting bright stars and nearby stars uh so the falcon 9 entered an initial uh 250 by 250 kilometer orbit and then restarted to place tests in a 280 by 270,166 kilometre orbit um, with a 29.6 degree um, offset. Inclination. Inclination, yeah. So that's highly elliptical, isn't it? Yeah. So a third burn obviously put that second stage into uh, into a solar orbit. So that's now disposed of, as it were. So yeah, TESS will be making a lunar flyby on May the 27th. Uh, and reach a half-month period operational orbit on June the 12th. It's kind of limited in in, in the star's brightness, the, mm-hmm. its, its search, but hopefully it will discover a, num- a large number of exoplanets that are close enough 
for detailed inspection by other observatories so that we can have a look at the spectroscopic uh, detail of these okay. planets. So we should maybe, yeah. maybe even find the atmospheres of these exoplanets. That'd be interesting. Interesting? Are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> I think interesting is a little bit of an understatement. Yeah. Talking of interesting, I should actually note note that another brilliant satellite, ESA's Gaia satellite, has just dumped a whole load of data about billions of stars onto the astronomy community. So that's been very exciting. That's going to be unravelled for the next decade, I should imagine, Yeah, the data from that one. So that's exciting. Tell us a bit about the X-37B. Why is that in the news? Uh, so the X-37B, uh, specifically the USAF OTV-5 space plane, mm-hmm. um, which was a mission launched in September of uh, 2017, has finally been located in orbit by hobbyists. And on April 11th, orbit was uh, 355 by 356 kilometres with a 54.5 degree inclination. Uh, a higher orbit inclination than earlier X-37B missions. Yeah, that is a super secretive uh, space plane shuttle. It's a, it's a bit tinier than the space shuttle, of course. Yeah. In fact, it's a lot tinier than the space shuttle. It's like a B-Tech shuttle. It's a B-Tech shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> for international listeners, it's a, that's a bit of a weird gag. The the B Tech is like a sort of qualification that you get in Britain that's become a kind of uh, term of mockery thanks to uh, Dapper Michael Dapper, <laughs> mainly just roadmen in road general. B Tech backup dancer. What is the news about Jim Bridenstine? So Jim Bridenstine confirmed as new NASA administrator. That's right. So finally, after a seven and a half month wait. We've got the new boss of NASA, and it's finally been chosen. So that's Trump's nominee, J- James Bridenstine. Is he a non-scientist? Uh, yes. That's the big, big <laughs> issue, is the fact that really he's, he's, right. he's just not the right man for the job in the eyes of a lot of people. However, he is a complete moon nut. Okay. So, yeah, if you look at his Twitter feed or anything like that, he, he's a, he is actually obsessed with the moon. So... I should imagine he's very much going to be the administrator that says, we need boots. We need them boots on the moon. Mm-hmm. We don't move boots on the moon, boy. Or we can expect to see uh, men on the moon soon. Men on him. the moon soon. That's right. We, sh- we should expect to see men on the moon soon. Well, Big time. Unlike the uh, uh, astronauts, I'm not holding my breath. Ah, uh, I see what you mean. Yes. Now, I'll tell you what's a really funny one, George. So the U- uh, in, the, in the Financial Times, it was reported that the UK is exploring producing its own satellite system because there's a lot of trouble with the EU's Galileo system in mm. terms of politics. Yeah. And it's, this is one of the very first practical kind of uh, problems that Britain's actually come up with uh, when it comes to leaving the European Union. Mm. So uh, Britain are threatening to, because we might not have proper access to it, and we might lose jobs as well because of it, it looks like Britain is going to, uh, is, is, is threatening to make its own system. So that could be exciting. Yeah, could, it could be really be. exciting about having our own GPS system. Um, so we'll have to see how that infol- unfolds. Now, 
George, I sent you, didn't I? I yeah. sent you... Picture. Oh, a, GIF or whatever it's yeah, called. Yeah, a GIF. A GIF. It's actually you pronounce GIF. Yeah, a lot of people pronounce it GIF, but I've always pronounced because, it GIF. Because the graphics in GIF yeah, is, graphics. begins with a yeah, gut. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm so it's you. like, you know. Yeah. Anyway, a GIF by a Twitter user. This came up rapidly in my feed on, on Twitter. It's just absolutely amazing. By Landrew79. Basically, a little GIF of a, a Rosetta flyby of Comet, however you say it. Do you want to have a go at saying what the uh, Rosetta comet was? We can do the uh, old uh, joke, the uh, remembering what it, how to say it joke. <laughs> Which is what? How do you say it? Uh, you know, wait, where, 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 what is it? Where, where is it? Oh, there was yeah. that rhyme, <laughs> rhyme to remember the Saturn's rings. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're ever wondering how to say the comet name, you just remember this little song. It goes, Churyumov Garasamenko. So you give it a go. Go, George. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It's now moving on. No. Oh, come on. <laughs> anyway, Comet, Comet 67P, Churyumov Garisomenko. Uh, anyway, there's a brilliant... That, 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 <laughs> that picture on Twitter is absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. What- Shame it's a podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. It is a podcast, but it'll be in the po- look, look. It's in the notes. I want people to interact with our uh, notes on our web page. Is as the well notes as... public? Yeah, of course they are. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never knew that. Yeah, big time. So why do you have to send it to me if they're public? Well, they're not public yet, are they? When we finish the <laughs> when we finish the podcast, they will be public. Okay, I see. Good grief! You know, because we sometimes Jamie and I are reading through, and we go, "Why are we reading this story out?" And we because it's so boring, mm-hmm. we cut it out. You see. So, uh, like this one, for example. <laughs> so, Bill Gates backs real-time global satellite surveillance network. Yeah? So, Bill Gates... Um, it, oh. <laughs> See, now I've said it's boring. I, I, I think it might be. So, what, <laughs> write in, listeners, if you found this, you found this one boring. But, but, yes, Earth Now, all one word, capital N for now, Earth Now, Mm-hmm. Uh, is a startup, and they've announced the decision to uh, uh, become a commercial business, and they're backed by Bill Gates, amongst many other things, and Airbus and SoftBank and things like that. So it's going to be pretty much adding a kind of surveillance element to uh, the OneWeb technology. So EarthNow plans to use the OneWeb technology to equip each satellite with an unprecedented amount of onboard processing power, including more CPU cores than all other commercial satellites combined. Uh, So it will have machine learning to analyse live imagery, although the company does not reveal exactly what the satellites will be analysing. They're spying on us. They are spying. Well, clearly, they are spying X-ray on us. through the roofs. So it, we're getting to the point now where you won't even be able to walk out your front door without some satellite looking at you, particularly if you're on your mobile phone mm-hmm. using your OneWeb internet access. Yeah. It's just like... Not, no more running outside naked. No, that's right. And Judas Priest predicted this back in 1978 with their classic song, Electric Eye. Go listen to it on the podcast playlist. Not sponsored. Not sponsored, no. I mean, although Judas Priest are fellow brummies. All right, our kid. Right. So, uh, uh, George, mm-hmm. would you like to have a listen to mine 
and David Baker's chat about what's coming up in the space news. Um, uh, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, good. Because <laughs> uh, here it is. Uh, a good day. I'm joined for my monthly chat with David Baker. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Matt. I'm really fine, thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent. So what have you got in store for me uh, this week? Ah, well, there's some very interesting reflections um, on what is going on with a certain Russian satellite. Russia seems to be in the news quite a lot these mm-hmm. days, doesn't it? <laughs> for various <laughs> reasons. But, but as, as they were indeed one of the most vigorous participants in the space race, it's not surprising that their technology now is still being, uh, it, it's still amazing us, and, mm. and we're still trying to decipher many of the things that are going on. So there's something there that we need to, to really discuss. Also, the fact that, it's, that, that there's, there's a battle of sorts between, in America, on the other side of the world, um, be, between Congress and the White House with regard to exactly what the priorities of the National Space Program should be, and we can talk a little bit about that. And, and also, there seems to be now a gathering consensus for the frequency of launching NASA's giant rocket, whether it's been shocked into, into getting its act together as a result of Elon Musk's uh, uh, Falcon Heavy. Um, mm. Probably not, but it certainly <laughs> hasn't done any harm to uh, put up from the commercial sector a privatized super heavy launch vehicle. And NASA's super heavy launch vehicle, the SLS, there's things to talk about that as the mission planning progresses. And then uh, going back as well to the Cold War days, I think uh, to end up, we should talk about uh, a Russian um, uh, inspector satellite that uh, has been used and connect that with the um, opportunity that NASA had during the 1970s to use American spy satellites to help understand better the crippled Skylab space station. Excellent. Well, there, there seems to be quite a lot to talk about there, but they, they all do seem to be connected in a, in a sort of weird golden thread of, <laughs> of some, I suppose it's a military, I suppose military space is, is in there quite a lot, isn't it? So, yeah, this, this, well, uh, so what are, what are the Russians up to at the moment with their satellites, etc.? Brief reflection on what you said about the military being dominant, of course, it does account for the greatest slice of money that the world spends on all space activities. And we sometimes tend to forget that, that less than half the money the United States taxpayer spends on space is spent um, by the military or by the National Security Services. So, so yeah, it's always going to come up. But obviously, with so much behind um, secret doors, there's not nearly the same degree of conversation or discussion about it. Um, but we can we can start perhaps with the with the Russian um, inspector satellite as mm. as we think it it is and this is Cosmos two five one nine and really the the interesting interpretation on that comes from one of the greatest analysts in the UK on Russian and Chinese space launches, which is Philip Clark, Phil Clark, mm. who British Interplanetary Society members will know is one of the participants in the annual seminar which is held in London at the BIS headquarters, examining over two days 
various aspects of the Russian and the Chinese space program. So Phil has done an analysis on Cosmos 2519, um, which was launched last year mm-hmm. uh, from the Placets Cosmodrome, the, the oldest of NASA's launch, <laughs> NASA's Freudian slip, <laughs> Russia's yeah. space program. Um, and uh, it's been behaving strangely and unpredictably. And so Phil's Sherlock Holmes spyglass has been looking at the mission and he believes that there are signs there that there's a new generation of what we're calling for want of a better word inspector satellites and these are uh, vehicles that can change orbit uh, on command in order to adjust the geometry of their trajectories so that they can encounter and rendezvous and have a close pass by satellites of particular interest that may not be of Russian origin. In other words, to go and and take the ethos of spy satellites from space looking to Earth back into space for satellites looking at other satellites in orbit. And this is not new. This has been going on for decades. And I think the one of the unwritten chapters in the history of the space program has been the degree of attention to rendezvousing with satellites that you wish to diagnose visually or physically by grappling hold of it and using sensors to understand what its functional job is. All kinds of legal issues arise from that as to whether uh, it contravenes international law by literally grabbing hold of somebody else's satellite and sniffing around and probing it and pushing and and having various sensors that can diagnose what its true function is because so many of them are undisclosed. I I didn't realise they actually went and and grabbed hold of the satellite. I mean, mean, can you describe some of the technical difficulties around that? Because presumably chasing down a satellite when they're going at terrific speeds, slightly different angles, all those sort of things requires, I'm assuming, quite a bit of fuel and quite a bit of skill. And um, computer power, I would imagine. Yes, yes. Uh, But let me be absolutely clear. The the aspiration has been to physically grapple other satellites. That has not been achieved by one nation against another nation's satellites. That is the capability which certainly does exist but has never been demonstrated in practice to date. But the whole problem of being able to match orbits was recognized very early in the the dawning years of the space age. And in fact, Buzz Aldrin did his research and his PhD was on, his thesis was on orbital rendezvous and the challenges that that brings up. And the driving requirement for that came before the Apollo program was even announced by Kennedy in 1961. This was back in the late 50s through a series of classified American programs. The moment there was the dawning of spy satellites, and remember that, that three years before Sputnik was launched, America was putting a huge amount of money into the development of military reconnaissance satellites in parallel with the open publicly declared Vanguard program for the International Geophysical Year. That was the, that was the, the uh, public space program that mm. was being much talked about and of course we all know historically the russians beat them to it but it was in support of a scientific examination of the earth and its environment that the international geophysical year supported these satellites parallel with that and completely in the black 
um, without public disclosure at all, were very serious and intense studies because Eisenhower was very concerned to gather uh, significant amounts of information about what was happening in the Soviet Union, uh, a very closed society, um, a, a world in which there was not the mass communications that we can relate to today, but for which any information that came out had to be physically leaked by human intelligence on the ground because aircraft, international flights, did not fly across the Soviet Union and were likely and were very frequently shot down. Mm. Airliners were shot down in, in the 1950s. So this was real, real concern. And so a lot of attention was given by a lot of the Air Force staffers who were looking at the development of a space program. And they said, what if, with these satellites up there, it's only going to be a matter of time before other countries put them up too. We need to be able to approach them. And in the days when long-range diagnostic sensing of what uh, vehicles are doing was, was yet to be invented and applied, the notion of having to physically take a satellite and go up close to another was the only way you could know what its function actually was. Mm. And so a tremendous amount went into that. But in terms of the technique, the difficulty is that the amount of energy that is required really overwhelms the limited weight you have in the satellite itself. So you have to use the Earth as a leveraging advantage in being able to change the relationship of your orbit to that of a satellite you want to approach. So you don't simply power up the engines and drive <laughs> and alongside across, it, yeah. Dandare style. As, as you raise your orbit, the relative velocity to the surface of the Earth slows, which means that the speed of the Earth passing underneath you changes according to the altitude over which you're flying, and this is common orbital mechanics. Mm. Um, and you, you can just effectively change your orbit by using a very small amount of propellant to raise that orbit so that effectively you walk your orbit around the planet proportional to the height you are depending on the speed at which the Earth revolves on its axis. Now, if you're in a polar orbit going from across the North Pole and the South Pole at 90 degrees to the equator, mm. and you are, in fact, going around the spin rotation of the Earth, the Earth will move from east to west, or, or from west to, to east, uh, much faster than if you're at a lower inclination orbit and close to the surface of the Earth. So you want to go into the right inclination of orbit in order to be in the plane, the angle of inclination compared to the equator, to the object that you want to observe. And then the job gets done very, very much easier. Because changing the plane of an orbit, going from, say, an inclination of 52 degrees, which would take the orbit as far north as the south coast of the British Isles, for mm -hmm. instance, um, you, you to, to change that even a few degrees of angle, so you want to raise the angle of the inclination, do a plane change, as mm. it were, um, to take you over Scotland, for instance, when the, the Earth is round in that relative position, that would require about 10 times the amount of energy that is required to do it with regard to allowing the Earth to walk around underneath you in the same plane. Um, you can't... You can't see my arms flailing around <laughs> graphically describing all this. Yeah. And, and, and if only we had an audio board where, yeah. 
<laughs> we <laughs> could draw sound pictures. <laughs> but it, 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 it's a complicated process. But, but this was common practice during the heady days of the Cold War when you could raise the orbit in order to, to either loiter over a particular place on the Earth or with regard to the rotation of the Earth underneath you. So that, for instance, American spy satellites during the various Middle Eastern wars of the 1960s and 70s, the seven days, the Six-Day War, etc., mm. and the Yom Kippur War. Um, the Americans needed to know exactly what was going on on those war fronts, and so the satellites would would be be raised or lowered in order to speed or slow the rate at which the Earth moved underneath you. So you could loiter um, while the orbit was nevertheless changing. You, you could loiter, and, and the Russians did this too. And, and so it was a game of, 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 of really using this orbital mechanics in order to change that altitude in order to change the relative rate at which you close on another object in space as well. And then you can lower the orbit in order to rendezvous in the standard practices of, of orbital rendezvous today, um, where you have to launch to the International Space Station. You have to launch in the plane of the orbital inclination of the of the space station, yeah. and and so so that's a matter of just uh, it, it it's a wonderful kaleidoscope of different options that that you have, but it's not that difficult. So it was a very early process that was sought and fueled a lot of research. Um, and Buzz Aldrin's thesis was essentially built around orbital rendezvous. So. He was known as Dr. Rendezvous within the program. <laughs> oh, and in right. fact, in the Gemini program, he, he contributed quite a lot. We, we had a, I can remember the, the, the absolutely wonderful, it, it was incredible, the number of different ways in which you could conduct rendezvous in orbit in the Gemini program. If, if, uh, it's all very much in the public domain, and, mm. and, and if listeners go and, and research a bit on this, there are, there are lots of books around and, and references which cite all these different kind of, of orbital uh, balances in order to speed up, slow down the relative rate at which you approach another object. So you can do this, and, and it's just it, you have to let time go by in order to allow the Earth to work with you in your orbital geometry, but it's very easily achievable. And that is what Phil Clark was looking at when he was uh, doing this research that uh, has allowed us in the upcoming issue of spaceflight to examine Cosmos 2519, because it seems as though there are added sophistications and pairing off as well as sub-satellites potentially being released to go off on their own and do examinations of, of other satellites. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. Well, one other technical difficulty I can see, I mean, any, any photographer will realise this, is if you're... The, the difference between um, photography of a nearby object, as in something you're flying next to, and uh, photography of, say, uh, objects on the ground. So are these, are these satellites built to just do one or the other, or can they actually do both? Well, photography, visual identification of what a satellite actually looks like, particularly from a foreign power that maybe does not release actual photographs of the satellite, and maybe they release images of satellites that are nothing like the ones that are actually hmm. launched. There is a requirement at the United Nations for launches to be registered and acknowledged and a declaration to be made. But there are satellites which are being launched that, that just may not be the ones that are officially declared to be. There's no 
stipulation uh, apart from the commercial conventions of registering for communication satellites, in which mm. case there's, there's a very, very stringent diagnosis of the specification and the frequency bands, and so you put pretty well strapped down exactly what the carrier is going to be putting up. But military satellites and national satellites for national security considerations, um, they could be doing anything because they are simply not disclosed. And and the Americans keep these very much as in the black as the Russians do. There's no difference. Um, you only get the launches shown and the external payload shroud. So uh, what these satellites are actually doing is, is unknown to um, all but those who need to know. Um, and so there is great interest in observing. But, of course, this comes off the back as well, morphing and merging in. And, again, we're looking historically. I'm not suggesting mm. that these Russian attempts are at this at all. But there's also the Killersat category, as they're called, whereby you may want to go up and neutralize another satellite. Um, and this can be done from the ground. There have been instances very recently where some countries have been able to neutralize the operations of satellites in space by propagations from the surface of the Earth. You may not actually even need to go into space to neutralize a space capability. Mm. Uh, but it morphs in. The reconnaissance and the inspector satellite concept morphs in with uh, that broader range of objectives. And, and, of course, the ability to knock satellites out has become a matter of extreme urgency to the um, defense interest and national security interest in the United States. And, and in last month's issue of Spaceflight, I discussed this, this whole emphasis now, which the U.S. Air Force is really beginning to ramp up um, the awareness of the categorization of space as the next frontier of conflict yeah. um, and not necessarily with, with guns going into space and we've talked about that but in this last month um, the Air Force has been making numerous presentations at lots of conferences and has been getting Congress very very attuned to thinking that there there are new levels to conflict in the 21st century and the two that are added are the war in cyberspace and the war in space itself yeah. But that does not necessarily mean weapons of mass destruction going into orbit. If you simply take out the eyes and ears of the military, which are so dependent now on satellites, then you have achieved a great deal. So this is all part of the general increase in attention to, to inspection and and also access denial, um, which, uh, which, which is all part of the... Um, the, the interest which the U.S. Air Force has and which certainly the Russians are exhibiting that they have an interest as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did notice uh, our own Air Chief Marshal, Sir Stephen Hillier, he, mm -hmm. he, he was talking about this very recently, wasn't he, just during the uh, Russian poisoning attacks. He, was, he sort of piped up and said, yeah, there's also this massive problem of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of cyberspace and them knocking out our GPS or or the yes. European equivalent, and, and just how yes. incredibly dangerous that all is. I think it's of interest as well to the Royal Air Force because its 617 squadron is over in the States firming up on the Lockheed Martin F-35 Lightning II, which is the new fifth-generation fighter that the RAF and, and the Royal Navy will be taking on board over the next few years. 
And 617 Squadron is moving back to RAF Marham in Norfolk uh, now as we speak um, and as this podcast goes out. And that is a sensor-fused data platform, the mm. F-35. It is not a, a, sta- a, a classic standard fighter. These aircraft now are sensor-fused data and network-centric warfare platforms which are coordinating satellites, ground systems, airborne warning control aircraft, AWACS. So you've got a whole integrated net. The RAF suddenly is becoming aware that without access to space-based systems, the F-35 would no longer be effective as a as part of Britain's defence infrastructure, and that is so important. So it's a sudden wake-up call, really, that that situational awareness in the network-centric um, platforms that are now being flown as categories of fighters, bombers, are no longer just fighters and bombers, but they are locked in um, and can only operate if the space-based platforms are working effectively and will take information down. And in fact, the weapons they release, the storm shadow missiles that were used by the tornadoes against targets in Syria recently, um, those rely GPS constant access if those platforms were taken down in space nothing would work and that's that that scares the military and it scares defense officials who are responsible for making sure those systems are effective so all this really is a subset and a component of a very much bigger picture no longer is it just about getting information down when you're looking in the sensor fusion world of net-centric warfare it, it it's really embracing land sea air cyberspace and space itself does this sudden realization of needing more military spending in space has this uh, led to the changes in the budget that nasa has received have, have they have they gone <laughs> well we need to increase spending so we're going to increase spending everywhere is that is that the vibe here well i think it certainly is and and there the, there is a shift now um, toward rebalancing the proportions of money that go to the civil and the military space sectors. Um, historically, the amount of money the U.S. spends on military space has been greater than the amount of money NASA spends. So what you see and what we all talk about in the open budget for what NASA's budget is, which is about 0.45% mm. of federal expenditure, about 05 to 0.6% of federal expenditure is buried in the Department of Defense budget for space activities. Now, traditionally, that was, as I said, more than NASA's budget. And then in the last few years, NASA has actually had a budget more than the defense budget for space. Because as, as the Defense Department has offloaded many of the flagship missions it has flown, the dark missions, which don't get talked about very much at all, these hugely expensive multi-billion dollar satellites per launch for eavesdropping, electronic intelligence gathering, photographic imaging, all of those platforms were built as dedicated satellites with Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, companies like that at the top of the contractual tree for those things. Gradually, in the past 10 years, there's been a movement right out into the commercial world so that you have got very small satellites now in the commercial sector which can do just the same job as these 
super expensive, dedicated, massive platforms the size of a London bus mm. um, that, that services for which are now being provided by the commercial sector. So whereas 20 years ago, the U.S. military was obtaining and, and the defense infrastructure intelligence interests of the United States were obtaining 95% of their intel from these dedicated, super expensive space-based platforms. They're now obtaining 70% of that information from ordinary commercial off-the-shelf COTS programs. Mm. And that has enabled the defense budget for space to come down. But now there is a, a, an increase realizing that the money that is being saved from those programs, and instead of building these very expensive, dedicated, bespoke military satellites, get all this information from the massive expansion in the commercial sector, instead of losing that, need to get that funding back up in the military, but use it to robustly create a stiffer infrastructure for serving all of these weapons platforms that will only work. So NASA's budget, I, I think everybody is becoming very much more aware in the United States political infrastructure that there is a greater reliance on space than many of them had realized, both in the civil and the military sectors. So we are seeing Congress actually restoring funds to NASA that have been taken away by the current White House administration. And, and that's one of the topics we, we should be talking about mm. here. It, it morphs into that. It's the same sort of platform of, of conversation. What have we seen in terms of... Go, uh, well, we've gone back, haven't we, to, to, to yeah. certain missions being not cancelled as we thought they were. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, I think, again, it's... it's we are talking here about a system in the United States which is very, very different to that in Europe and the UK, where our governments tend to project programs that have largely been approved on the nod and are then simply declared in the relative legislatures, Houses of Parliament for the UK, House of Commons, the budget is presented, it's discussed, and essentially it goes through on the knob because we have a strange system where the party that is in power has more votes than all of the rest combined, which isn't what happens in the United States. So you get more vigorous debate in the legislature. But our executive, the government here, has a much easier ride of getting things through Parliament. In America, the White House is the executive, and it cannot actually write any laws at all. It can't do a thing. It can only propose. So where you've got a very outspoken, verbose president can make all these grandstanding statements, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, we're not going to put money into this, we are going to put money into that, we're going to build a wall with Mexico, we're going to, you know, flash this. Forget it. That's all just junk speak until it comes before Congress. And Congress, in looking at the budget that Trump had presented for the current financial year and the one coming up starting in their financial year, 1st of October this year, 2019 budget, um, Trump had taken out several elements which brought huge fury in Congress. Um, and, and Congress is not, is not uh, any stranger to this kind of confrontation. It happened 
two presidential terms ago with the first term of office of Obama when he suddenly cancelled the Constellation program. And Congress was furiously reactive on that and immediately inserted the space launch system and Orion, completely overturning Obama's attempt to get rid of government-funded human spaceflight and rely purely on the commercial sector. That was reversed. Now Trump going, saying, we no need to spend money on education in the NASA budget. We should completely take out the majority of spending on earth science, climate research, mm. pure science. Well, Congress has said, oh, no, you don't, and reinserted those figures again. So, so the noisy front end of American politics is when the president struts around making all of these grandiose claims what he can do, um, and one day what she can do, no doubt. Mm. Um, it has to go before Congress, and there's blood on the floor at the end of all this, because they will not. They will not pass legislation, um, and they are the only ones that can, and the president has to sign off. He has a veto option, but that's only limited. He cannot just, just wave that veto pen ad nauseam. He has got to be very limited. Otherwise, there can be other constraints placed upon Congress against him vetoing programs. So it's an axe he can only wield uh, at, at infrequent intervals. So basically, he has to go along. And Congress has looked at NASA's budget, has added, has, has raised it by almost 800 million um, from 19.8 to 7 to almost 20.7 billion, uh, which is still only around 0.45% of federal expenditure, which is in its trillions, um, and has reinserted the money for education so that NASA's message can be taken out to schools, to universities. It's all the way from educational programs informing schools what NASA is doing, linking with school projects to support them. It's about turning up at universities with career stands. All of that comes under NASA's education budget. And the Trump administration said, forget it, this, this, this actually should be the responsibility of the Department of Education. Um, and yet that is so swamped with other things mm. that space would hardly get a look in. Um, and he's also reinstated all of the earth science programs, or Congress reinserted the earth science programs that he had cancelled um, because he's averse to taxpayers' money going into what he considers is just a, a Chinese Ch money. <laughs> Chinese <laughs> con story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and, and we can celebrate that because there is great need for NASA to remain at the cutting edge of this. The others, the others agencies like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the U.S. Department of Interior, U.S. Geological Survey, all of those organizations are applicants of the data that is acquired by NASA instruments. Mm. And the ability for NASA to diagnostically plug in these orbital sensors to global challenges and problems which only a fool would deny exist um, it is, is precious and is one of the most outstanding contributions that NASA is making in the world today, right outside the context of going anywhere in space or exploring anywhere in space. It is essential to fully understanding in an informed and scientific way 
so that we can make responsible and mature decisions and not be denied the information that brings clarity and balance. So that's a very good thing. And also, Congress has reinserted um, funding for the second manned space launch system mission. And uh, it might seem obvious that there would be a rolling series of missions. And Congress had testimony from NASA. It called upon NASA to to testify to it and address just how frequently it would like the space launch system to fly. And NASA has very quietly made the commitment that there's going to be a space launch system launch every year and that there's a remorseless, progressive development of building a deep space infrastructure. This has already been approved. I think we talked about this last month, about the the lunar orbital platform gateway, Mm. which all the major uh, partners in the International Space Station have signed up to, and which will be developed by the early 2020s. Um, as the funding for the International Space Station begins to shift toward this new deep space gateway. And the new upper stage that's needed, uh, the first space launch system launching end of next year, beginning of 2020 in that region, is going to be three years after that before the first manned launch. And just to remind listeners that uh, there has to be this three-year gap because there's only one launch pad that's available and they're going to have to modify that launch pad to accept the bigger space launch system upper element, which is the new and more powerful upper stage. Uh, And the first one that will fly is the second SLS, the first one of those upper stages, and that will support the first manned Orion, which is a bold step because the first Orion to fly unmanned on the first SLS mission will not have an environmental control system on so so that's going to be an apollo 8 moment in a way (laughs) because we're going to be sending people to the moon on a relatively untried spacecraft so so i'm i'm very much in support of that because we need to get back this bold initiative of of risk management rather than risk aversion and there's very very uh solid um uh, confidence that that will be the case um i've declared in this coming issue of Spaceflight some words from Robert Lightfoot, who was the outgoing acting administrator, because the other news this month is that we now finally um, have a new NASA administrator. <laughs> Robert Lightfoot yeah. was, was holding the fort. Uh, Robert has been at NASA since 1989, rapidly rose through the ranks of the Marshall Space Flight Center up to headquarters and then became acting administrator. When Charlie Bolden stood down on January the 20th last year when Trump became president, not as a personal slight on the president, but it's normal for appointees of a previous White House incumbent to retire on the day that that administration ends. Mm -hmm. And Trump has not managed to get Congress to approve a new administrator until now. And the reason for that is that Congress was concerned that Bridenstine is not a space engineer, not a space scientist, he's a politician. Mm. And they felt that the head of an organization like NASA should have an experienced scientist or engineer, or at least somebody that had worked with NASA. Um, And he was a fighter pilot, a politician, um, has had three terms in the House of Representatives, retiring this year anyway, uh, and he only got through by one vote because there was deep concerns that this was not the right man to lead the agency as it transitions now into some of the most adventurous times are coming 
for NASA and the international space partners that we've seen since Apollo. So a lot has been boiling around. Congress has reinserted vigorously the money that's needed to keep this going. NASA will be launching SLS flights every single year. It's now got funding to begin to immediately start contracting the development or, or the manufacture of the second upper stage for Exploration Mission 3. EM-1 will be the first unmanned SLS, EM-2 the manned flight into lunar orbit, a halo retrograde lunar orbit, and then the third flight of SLS, the second manned one, the second flight of this new upper stage is now well-funded. So it's good news round on that. But as usual, it's been the big shout-outs from the White House that have got all the headlines, and gradually all this damage is being... Um, is, is being um, overturned and repaired, as it were, by the Congress, that is very, very space-orientated and very space-supportive right across the political divide. And this is why I am so confident, Matt, that we are really on a roll now, because for the first time we've got both houses of Congress and NASA and a generally supportive White House for space, and we've never had this combination before. That's really exciting, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at the, the latest news on SLS that I've been reading about is that the first four flights will be on the Block 1 variant of it, including the, the EM2 crew mission, because they're building a second mobile launcher. That's right. Does that mean Europa Clipper's going up on Block 1 as well? I think it would be very, um, that, that's still very much in the works. And indeed, NASA has not yet completed all of its final studies onto exactly the mission profile of what that will be. So there's a lot of hope and expectation being placed upon this, but, but the fine detail of that is still a little bit up in the air. Right, yeah. Or out in space. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I've just noticed that... Um, Amateur spotters have spotted the X-37B, because that's another one of these yes. clandestine <laughs> military yes. satellites. I'm assuming that, that, that does a sort of similar thing of, uh, presumably has the capability of, of going around inspecting other, other satellites. The capabilities that that have are only vaguely hinted at by the Air Force. Um, and there's been much speculation, um, not least from myself, as to exactly what that vehicle is actually achieving. But it certainly does. Uh, the biggest capability which it has is that it is able to routinely fly back and forth. We, we have a shuttle. It is shuttling back and forth. And it is an aerospace plane which is capable um, of carrying a very wide range of payloads. It has solar cells. It is capable of staying in orbit for more than a year. Um, that is an extraordinary capability in itself. And to land autonomously back at the Kennedy Space Center is really quite a remarkable achievement. And it's an installed part of operations. And probably some would say quite sadly, there never has been a time when NASA has been merging the open, peaceful exploration space with some of the requirements of the military than it is now, because it's now an installed part of activity right at the Kennedy Space Center. Amazing. Probably a suitable note to end it on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me again, David. Okay, take care then. George, what did you think about that? Uh, well, 
I mean, David Baker's kind of a good guy, you know. I actually cut him a little bit short because I was rushing off to work. It's been a bit of a rushy off-to-work kind of week this week. Uh, but, yeah, one thing that he wanted to talk about more, which is going to be appearing in, in Spaceflight magazine, is this whole idea of how a secret military satellite was used to have a look at Skylab and see what the damage that was done. So... Uh, this is what uh, David said to me just after I kind of mentioned it. So he kind of mentions it a little bit here. Uh, have a little quick listen to that. The one thing I never saw is is photographs that the Gambit 3 took. Is, do they actually exist or do they? Um, no. They Whatever photographs were taken were not particularly helpful. And uh, the paper that we've got in this next issue of Spaceflight covering that identifies that there was a lot of opportunity that was presented there and there was maneuvering of the satellite in order to try to bring it as close as possible to get the angular alignment with the correct sun angles on Skylab, but that um, the degree to which it was helped, I have to say this was this was known about at the time. I remember that as, as being very, very well um, understood. But I have never seen any images of that, and I don't know anybody who actually has. They may yet appear even before this this podcast goes out, <laughs> but I doubt that to a very considerable extent because that one area of one satellite looking at another is one very, very dark area that is held very close to the bone in terms of what is released and what is not released. I would really like to do a deep dive on that, but I'm going to wait until it comes out in spaceflight and uh, and take that one further because I think that's a very interesting little story. Aren't we in spaceflight? Uh, yes, we are featured in spaceflight. Mm-hmm. That is correct. We have a little, occasionally our picture, mine and Jamie's little picture outside ESA appears in spaceflight. We're associated with the British Interplanetary Society. Mm. Very well famous. Good, very good friends and colleagues all. We're going to leave you with Jamie giving us a little space fact. Boom. Jamie, I hope, are you out there? Send us your space fact. In 1929, Hubble realised that redshifts of the galaxies were not random. The further away a galaxy, the faster it's hurtling into the void. A galaxy three times further away from another galaxy was receding at three times the velocity. Right, there was Jamie's space fact. Mm. So, George, what can people do uh, to uh, support the podcast? Well, you can first donate to the Patreon. Right, and where would where would I find this Patreon? Everywhere. Everywhere? <laughs> no, just, just go on the website and there's a button. Just press it. Go on the website, there's a button. How will I find the website? You just search up www.interplanetary.org. UK. Wow, you know the you know the web address. Jamie doesn't. <laughs> Every time I, I, I ask him, he doesn't know it. I just made that up, but I, I yeah, I got it. That right. is actually right. Yeah, oh yeah, wow! Yeah. But actually, I mean, just stick in, just stick into the search engine of your choice. Probably Google. Uh, just stick into the search engine What's of your choice. The Interplanetary Podcast, and you'll get there. You'll mm-hmm. get there. Yeah, yeah, big time. So yeah, go to the Patreon. That's that's a good place. So what else? What else could listeners do? Uh, well, you, you can subscribe to the um, platforms we're on, YouTube, SoundCloud, um, the others. Come on, iTunes, isn't it, really? Yeah. Leave a nice five-star review on iTunes. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that'd be great. And of yeah. course, there's always the prize. There's or always a prize star. for the best five star review on iTunes. If you send in, also send us your email via the website, uh, uh, send us your address, I will send you a mug of your choice. Well, actually, it'll just be the interplanetary mug. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a great mug, though. Uh-huh. As as advertised on the British Interplanetary Society Twitter mm-hmm. feed when Jill herself got one. Right. Uh, George, do you want to say bye-bye to the listeners? Because we've kept them for a long time I'm in this shabbily conceived show. Yeah. <laughs> So say say bye then. Goodbye. Don't, don't, don't nudge it. Don't buy at me. I can't. They, the readers can't see you. <laughs> goodbye. A goodbye, listeners. Au revoir.